turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. It seems that we have been speaking much in here recently about the increasing depravity that we have seen in our society. Isn't that what we're seeing recently? The culture around us just running, you know, like we said, running down the page of Romans 1 just as fast as it can, trying to get to the bottom. It is so bad that the man who will become our president this week has called transgenderism the civil rights issue of our day. And that was over eight years ago that he said that. No one would have imagined that 20 years ago. The drift of the culture into an increasing open rebellion against God and his law that we see in the media and and higher education and entertainment, the rebellion against that law, it's so obvious that I'm actually not going to spend any more time this morning proving that to you. But this is the culture that we live in, and this is the culture in which we live out the Christian life, the Christian life that Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, where he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if a salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Sitting on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Living in a culture like ours, there is a particular danger that we face, a temptation to minimize the words of Christ here. Around us, we see the absolute abomination and the wicked rebellion that's present in, that's present in every single word that's represented by the acronym LGBTQ+. Each of those letters represents a lifestyle that mocks our creator, mocks our holy God. Even the plus, even the plus just demonstrates that we live in a culture that knows that there's, there are more ways that we can go even farther in our rebellion against God. We just haven't thought of them yet. So we're going to add that plus there. When we see this around us everywhere, when we look at the, the nausea-inducing genocide of abortion, it is very easy in this environment to see just how different we are in this world. And thinking only in terms of these issues, it is easy to see how we are salt in this society, slowing down how quickly it decays just by speaking out against these issues. It is easy to see ourselves as the light of the world in this context as well. And while it is absolutely true that these are indeed wicked assaults on the holiness of God and Christians should have nothing to do with them and we should absolutely stand in clear opposition to them, That is not where the line in the sand is drawn when it comes to assaults on the holiness of God. The line in the sand where we see where things that Christians should be known for standing against. We are to be those striving for righteousness in all areas of life. The danger in living in a culture as depraved as ours is that We are tempted to abandon in it, we are tempted to abandon our focus on rooting out some of the truly horrible assaults on the character and holiness of God in our own lives, since that we have in many cases made kind of a compromise on in order to vigilantly fight and speak and post against the evils of this world. 
This danger has become the reality for so many of us that this following statement will, will strike our ears as almost silly sounding, or at least in exaggerations. How does it sound when I say Christians should be those who stand against and have nothing to do with all of the types of wickedness and rebellion against the holy God of the Bible that this culture has come to accept and embrace? Things like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and complaining. But a statement like that just, it just catches us wrong because one of those things just doesn't seem like it belongs in the same category as the others. And, and there is a sense, of course, in which those other sins do represent better a culture that is given over to judgment and destruction. But grumbling and complaining is an incredibly serious affront to God, the God we claim to serve. And it represents a far greater danger for our church than those sins that we so easily recognize and battle against. So much so that if this coming cultural immoral wave ends up snuffing out the light in every church in our surrounding area, say it did, and we were the last church standing that refuses to legitimize same-sex marriage, that we, we were the last church standing, the only church that continues to recognize that there are only two genders, and the only church that holds to the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception on, if we were the last church faithfully holding on to these biblical truths... But we are also a church made up of grumblers and complainers, then there is no way that we could possibly define ourselves as faithful. Just like all of those other churches that have caved into the culture, we will not be salt and we will not be light. It is that serious sin and it is that important of a command? That is what we're going to look at in Philippians. 2 today. Philippians 2, 14 through 16 is our passage, and from it we are going to see first the command not to grumble, followed by some reasons why Christians cannot ever be complainers. So today we're going to see six reasons why Christians should never complain. Six reasons why Christians should never complain. We're going to see the first reason in the command itself and then you'll be able to see the other reasons just flowing out of it in the, in the rest of this passage. You'll see that clearly right here as we read it together now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Let's start in verse 12 for context. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So, point number one, reason number one in, in your outline, we do not grumble or dispute because of the seriousness of the command. The seriousness of the command. 
And it is important to note that the command is flowing out of what came previously in in verses 12 and 13. You are to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is working in you for his good pleasure. And with that in mind, with that in mind, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So fearing God means that you will not grumble. Grumbling is always a sign that at least in that moment, you have no fear of God. The word translated is grumble. It can also mean to murmur. It's in reference to kind of complaining under your breath, not necessarily maybe making a big deal about something, but but it is still obvious to those around you that you are displeased with what is happening. It is this, this inner discontentment, being upset that things are not going the way that you want. And while you might maybe work not to broadcast your discontentment, maybe you might just subtly or not so subtly hint at it with your comments or your facial expressions. Or possibly and dangerously, you grumble to just one other person or maybe to a, to a small group of close friends. Paul's word choice here is a sign for just how serious of a sin this is. The word for grumbling is used eight times in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul's primarily Gentile audience is going to be familiar with. It's used eight times in the Septuagint, and seven of those eight times are directly referencing the generation of the Israelites that wandered through the wilderness. In fact, the only other time that Paul uses that word is in 1 Corinthians 10.10, the passage we began the service with, where Paul is, in that passage, directly referencing that generation of Israelites. And we'll go through this. There's more language in this brief section that makes it evident that this is what Paul has in mind. And and we're going to reference that in a moment. But every commentator that I read agrees on this point. Paul wants his readers to have the bad example of rebellious Israel in their heads as they're hearing this. So we probably should also. So turn back to the book of Numbers. Turn to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, this is shortly after that wonderful moment of celebrating the Passover in chapter 9, and they see the cloud and the fire coming down and descending on the tabernacle, and then we see them in chapter 10 finally setting out from Sinai, and they are being led to the promised land by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I mean, look at 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 33 through 36. He says, so they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. So you read that and then you read abruptly the the very next section in, in, in verses one through three of chapter 11, we read this, and the people complained. 
in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So God's chosen people whom he has miraculously saved out of Egypt, they begin to complain and the fire of the Lord burns among them and they face his wrath and they face his judgment for complaining. And in the next few chapters, we see more examples of the people complaining and grumbling about their circumstances. They don't see things going the way that they want them to, and they don't understand, so they complain. Look over, go over to chapter 14. And so chapter 14, so, so we skipped a little bit. This is after they've sent the spies into the land and the whole congregation was afraid of the spies report because of the, the fearsome enemies that were inhabiting the land. So rather than trust God, they complained about their circumstances, wishing that they would have just died in Egypt. Look at 14, one through four. Then all of the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept to that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones, will they become a prey? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. And look down at verses 11 and 12. And, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? Despise me. And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation great and mightier than they. So these are people These are people who certainly believed in the existence of God. They, of course, believed in the existence of God. They had just come through some of the most miraculous signs that we see in the Bible. They just followed this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. And they've come through the Red Sea. And they they have seen the plagues that God used to, to miraculously bring them out of Egypt. They believe in God but they are complaining and grumbling about where he is leading them. Presumed difficulty that God apparently wants to take them through. They don't want any of that. Look over at number 16. Just just one more example. Number 16, go to verse 41. This is after the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of Korah, God judges that rebellion Verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them 
for wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly and behold, the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people and he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who had died in the affair of Korah. If you had asked any of these Israelites, any person there, if they believed in God, they would have certainly said yes. And if you caught them at the right time, they would even take pride in their identity, pride in identifying themselves as part of God's chosen people. But in spite of that, God sees their grumbling and complaining. He sees it as a people that despises him. A people that does not believe in him. And as a result, he pledges to strike them and to disinherit them. In that next section, if we'd have kept reading in chapter 11, Moses intercedes for them and the Lord pardons them, but says none of them will be in the promised land. And God takes that grumbling so seriously that he lets all of Israel go on an extended detour of the wilderness until every single one of that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, dies. This is his judgment on their grumbling. As we now turn back to Philippians, as we turn back to Philippians and approach the command now of chapter 2, verse 14, it is important that we have these things in mind. We remember the deadly, serious way that God sees our grumbling. And the reason he does not strike us dead is the mercy of God in Christ. He sees grumbling as a way in which we contradict the belief and the trust that we say that we have in him. He sees grumbling as a way in which his children, his children who have been saved by grace, despise him. He sees it as worthy of the death penalty. And even worse, all grumblers should be disinherited by God. So when you read this short little command in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Remember that. When those who have experienced the absolute miracle, the divine privilege and blessing of the salvation of God, when we grumble about the circumstances that that same God has chosen to place us in, we're despising him. We're despising the God who saved us. And the command to do all things without grumbling or disputing, all things because we know that God is in control of all things, of every circumstance that we are in. So every time we grumble, it is against the circumstances that our sovereign God has placed us in. Disputing the other word there is, is kind of synonymous word, but it refers more to immediately to acting on doubt, acting in, in doubt and disagreement with what is going on. But it is grumbling and disputing against what God has brought into your life. 
So that's the command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And when you really have that in your head, just how serious this command really is, then it will make these next five reasons why a Christian should never complain. It should make them quite evident. So the command itself was, was reason number 1.1, the seriousness of it. And all of you astute hermeneutic students will, students will notice that these next five reasons just flow right out of that command. They're connected right to it. You, you see this right at the beginning of our next verse in verse 15 with the word that, or maybe so that. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent. So reason two, point number two, we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing because it signifies our sanctification. It signifies our sanctification. You see this in that next phrase. Again, you may be, that you may be blameless and pure children of God. We don't grumble. We don't complain because we are to be blameless. And blameless does not mean sinless perfection. This has to do with, with our appearance before others. It's also translated in some, uh, some places as faultless. So in the area of grumbling, we are to live in such a way that no one would ever describe us as a grumbler or a complainer. As a Christian, this is supposed to be a defining mark of your character. And again, when we think about this, it makes perfect sense, right? Christians of all people should never have a reason to complain or grumble. Never. We are those who understand that our lives are in the hands of a sovereign God who is working out every single thing for our ultimate good and for his own glory. Everything. All things. Everything that you see out there in the world today that you see going on around you, that stuff that makes you angry, or that, or that maybe makes you worry about the future, the things that make no sense to you, that make it look like the world has, has lost its mind and it's doomed. Every one of those things, every one of them, if you're in Christ, they're under the sovereign control of that same God who is moving all of those pieces for your ultimate good, for the good of his church, and for his own glory. All Christians, therefore, should be blameless in this area before all who know them. No one who knows you at all should be able to level the charge of grumbler against you. How confident are you about that? Is that true of all your coworkers? What would they say? What about your spouse? About your children? Being blameless in this area is to be the mark of every Christian. For someone who claims to believe about God, what we claim to believe about God, watching a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ grumble about any situation that he finds himself in, if we really believe what we claim we believe, it's akin to then watching a grown man throw a screaming fit and cry and hide when the doctor asks him to take some bad tasting medicine. It's worse for us than that. If we really believe what we say we believe about God and then grumble. Do we believe that God is who he says he is and does what he says he will do? 
I mean, doctors are great, but don't we have more trust in God than we do in them? That is why it is expected that no one should see any Christian as a grumbler or to be blameless in this area or to be innocent, it also says. So blameless refers to our appearance before others. Innocent speaks to our inner character. That means pure or, or more specifically means unmixed. So what does it mean to be innocent or unmixed with the world when it comes to grumbling or disputing? It actually makes perfect sense in this context. Of course, this is the result of not complaining. Think about what it is the world complains about. Think about all of the things that you hear complaints about in the world around us. They grumble, they complain, they dispute because they are living for the enjoyment of this life and this life only. So anytime anything gets taken from them that would have normally helped them to enjoy this life more, they grumble or complain. Anything that stands in the way of their enjoyment of this life, that's also worth grumbling and complaining about because fulfillment in this life is all that they have and all that they see. That's not us, right? We are living for eternity. We have traded this life for the next. We have died to that way of living and that way of thinking. And we now live a new life to God. A life where we understand that there is nothing here that, nothing here that will not perish. Nothing here that is eternal. There is nothing in this life that we could lose that would have ever provided us any more than fleeting momentary pleasure. That's all we can lose here. We know that our God will continue to graciously give us everything that we need to continue on in this life for as long as he has purposed for us to be here. And then he brings us into an eternal paradise where we live in his presence for eternity. That's this life. We maintain our innocence and we maintain our purity as we joyfully obey this command, demonstrating that we are not stained by this world and its treasures and its goals. So we do not complain and grumble against our good and gracious God when we lose even things like houses or jobs or cars and all of the other treasures of this world. And we don't even grumble against our God when we lose more significant things like our freedom, our relationships, our friendships, or even when we tragically lose dear friends and family and loved ones to death. We are sad and we weep and we can mourn, but not as those who have no hope. While we may mourn the loss, we do not grumble against God because, because right, as, as those who believe and trust in him, we know the truth of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What have you ever lost? What have you ever lost that did not originally come to you as a kind and gracious gift from the very same kind and gracious God who now takes it away. He gave it to you because he loves you and is always doing that which is best for you. And he takes it away because he loves you and is always doing what is best for you. 
We do all things without grumbling or disputing so that we may be blameless and pure, unstained inside and out by the love for the world and for this earthly life that marks everyone else. Point number three, reason number three, we do all things without grumbling or disputing because we see our position. We see our position, our position meaning our identity, right right there. You may be blameless and innocent, children of God, children of God without blemish. We are children of God. What on earth does the child of God have to grumble about? This is the gender neutral term for children rather than sons. The word that would signify and, and, and point us to thinking about being heirs. The emphasis here is on the fact that God is our father. God is our father. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God. It is a greater honor, a far greater honor than, than if we were the poorest and sickliest homeless child in the poorest nation being adopted by the most powerful king in the world our honor is greater. And this is the reality that we live and breathe in every day. And, and any grumbling and any complaining about our circumstances that, that we don't like or losses that we don't think are fair will only ever proceed from the mouth of one whom this unbelievable reality is true of. Child of God. And the reality is even greater than that illustration because it's not, it's not like he just saw some poor kid in need of a home and took mercy on us and adopted us to be his children. We weren't some poor orphan in need of a home. What were we? We were his sin-loving enemies. In and of ourselves, we are those who take pleasure living our lives in rebellion against him. That's who we are. Living and enjoying his creation while despising the creator. We had no ability to do anything but sin against him. And we deserved nothing but his wrath upon us for all of eternity. We deserve much worse than the grumbling Israelite received. We deserve nothing but his wrath. That is where we were. We have moved from that position, that position to the position of child of God. And for that to happen was so much more than just filling out adoption papers. As the just judge of the universe, God could never allow our sins to go unpunished. So he sent his only son Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the divine word became fully man. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, a perfect life without blemish. He lived the only life in human history that deserved to be exalted, never sinning against God, not once. Even though he did nothing wrong, he took our place on the cross and took the just punishment of the holy wrath of God that we deserved. He took it upon himself. 
He took our place, took the punishment we deserved. He died, and he then rose from the dead, proving that his sacrifice is acceptable to God. And it is only when we repent of our sins, we put our trust in that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that which God did on our behalf. It is only then that our sins are paid in full in Christ. And not only that, but we are, we are credited with the perfect righteous life that Jesus Christ lived. Which we need because it is only with the imputed righteousness of Christ that we are able to actually be children of God. We need that to be children of God. So when we see that as our position, when we understand that as our position, children of God, we, we dare not jump over the incredible saving act of God and what he has done for us in Christ so that we can be called children of God. That is what God has done for us to make us that way, to make us his children. And as the children of the sovereign king of the universe, the king who went to that length to purchase our salvation and to make us into his children, what on earth could ever come into our lives that would cause us to think that grumbling, that complaining is a justifiable action before such a good God and loving father? We do all things without grumbling or disputing because when we truly see our position, our position as children of the Most High God, when just how it is that we came to receive that position, the idea of ever grumbling about anything, anything should fill us with embarrassment. Point four, reason number four. We do all things without grumbling or disputing because we are to be set apart in our culture. We are to be set apart in our culture. And we see that as we read on in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We are to be without blemish in the midst of a crooked, depraved, twisted generation. The phrase in the midst of, that means that they are in the, literally in the middle of it. The idea is that this crooked and twisted generation is, surround, is on them on all sides. It's completely surrounding them. And, and don't forget that these, these Philippians that Paul is writing to are themselves immersed in a crooked and immoral culture. A very crooked and immoral culture. Right? We don't actually have them on that. This culture is crooked. By crooked, the, the word means that they are deviating from that which is straight, uh, twisted. That can also be rendered as perverse. So when you understand that, while it is true that our culture has invented new types of immorality and new ways to express immorality, the Roman culture that, that Philippi was a part of, and proudly so, that culture took part in some heinous, commonly practiced forms of sexual immorality that I went back and forth about describing and decided not to. But while it may not have been as diverse as our culture in its sexual immorality, even in that culture, it was things like pedophilia were much more commonly accepted and practiced. Again, don't forget Romans 1, 
was written to the church in Rome. It's talking about the Roman culture. And if you remember, Philippi is a city that is proud of its place in the Roman Empire and goes out of its way to try and implement as much of Rome's culture as it can to itself. So when Paul is speaking of a crooked and twisted generation, he has in mind a lot of the same stuff that we do when we look around our culture. But when he chooses to use that phrase, he has another reason for doing that also. And that's something we need to know. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier when we said that Paul wants them to be thinking about the rebellious wilderness generation from Israel's history. So turn back now in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. So here we have Israel now. They're finally about to enter the promised land. The end of Deuteronomy, it's just before Moses' death. And Deuteronomy 32 is him speaking the words of this song to the Israelites before they enter. It's a reminder to them of the greatness of the God who has brought them there. And in it, we are reminded also of that complaining generation that was judged. Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So we see there, this is the exact language that Paul is using in our passage right there in verse five. This is what he is thinking about. Paul is demonstrating to the Philippians that that whereas there, there once was a crooked and twisted generation that thought themselves to be the children of God, but were not. But in contrast to them, he has called them, you are the children of God. They are the children of God. They are not the crooked and twisted generation, but rather the children of God who stand in the midst of that generation. The fact that they were grumblers against the God who was supposed to be their father demonstrated that they were crooked and twisted and not actually his children. That's what the Israelites were. But, but, you see in Philippians, you, but, but Paul is saying, you Philippians, by your obedience to this command to not grumble or dispute, you show yourself to be the children of God without blemish, not part of this crooked generation, but rather in the midst of it. Go back again to Philippians. This is what causes us, as it says, to shine as lights in the world. 
to shine his lights in the world. This concept that we talked about in the beginning, uh, that the beginning from Matthew 5, one that we Christians know and understand well, the idea of being a light in a dark world, the idea that we're supposed to be um, lights, lamps in this dark world. Paul brings that out here so that we will see that what makes them light shining in the dark, what makes them lights that shine in this dark and crooked culture that they are in the midst of is the fact that they are not those who are given to grumbling. That they are in fact blameless and innocent in grumbling. Do you see how amazing this is? Paul is saying, do you want to know what this looks like? Being, being a child without blemish, being a light in the darkness, what it means to shine like stars in a crooked and twisted generation, what it means to live as children of God without blemish. It looks like this. Do all things without complaining, without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is how you are a light. This is how they will know who your father is. That's how. So many of us in our understanding of what it means to be a light to the world in this crooked and twisted generation, we have settled for such low-hanging fruit of, of merely, merely being those who take a stand for biblical marriage. Or, or aren't afraid to tell this culture that there are only two genders and that it's God's decision, not theirs. Or those who boldly stand for the unborn. Or those who call out the secularization that they see going all across the culture as it goes farther and farther away from biblical morality. So often we mistakenly believe that merely being countercultural causes us to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation that is pushing these dark things on us so aggressively. But that is not the case. Of course, those are all things that we should strongly oppose and speak against. But they are also strongly opposed by Mormons, by Muslims, even by Muslim terrorists, by conservative talk show hosts, by all of the false teachers and false prophets that you see on TBN, even by the hundreds of people who stormed and vandalized the Capitol a week and a half ago. You share that counterculturalness with all of them. Merely taking a countercultural stand does not make you a light in a crooked and twisted generation. What sets apart the true child of God from the crooked and twisted generation that all of those groups are also a part of is righteous living with an unswerving, unwavering trust in a sovereign God. It is to be one whose soul is so overjoyed with the eternal treasure that has been made his through the unbelievable gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is nothing you can do to that person and nothing you can take from him that would cause him to grumble about the situation that God has placed him in. This is the child of God without blemish in a crooked and twisted generation, shining like a light in the world 
whether it be in a red state or a blue state. Those who do all things without grumbling or complaining are the ones who demonstrate an uncompromising trust in God. So when they do take a stand against some of those defining issues in this crooked and twisted generation, you can be sure it is evident that it is truly out of a love and devotion to the Lord and for no other reason. It is these people, as we continue on, who will be holding forth the word of life. That brings us to our fifth point. Our fifth point, reason five, we do all things without grumbling or disputing because it strengthens our witness. When we do all things without grumbling or disputing, it strengthens our witness. So the first phrase in verse 16 is linked directly to those who are shining as stars in the world. It says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. You see that? So lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that first phrase in verse 16 linked back to the shining as, as lights. This is an aspect of what shining looks like. The word of life, so translated in other places as the message of life, that's in reference to the gospel. The gospel is literally the word that has brought us life. The saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And holding fast can mean either holding tightly to And that should certainly be true of us. It is the gospel. It is the precious message of the salvation of sinners through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes the idea of being a grumbling Christian so repulsive. But the phrase holding fast might better be rendered as it is in other translations as as holding toward or holding out. With the idea being that you are displaying it for others. And that would certainly be true of all those who are holding fast to the word of life anyway. So what Paul is saying here is, as the children of God, as children of God, you as children of God, as you go through your lives, doing all things without grumbling or disputing about whatever it is that is before you, whatever it is that comes into your life, whatever trial you may face, You will shine like lights in the world as you display the word of life, the message of the gospel, holding it forth for others. Don't don't confuse me here. I'm not not saying that merely, merely the action of doing all things without grumbling or disputing is the same as a proclamation of the gospel. It is not. It is a glorious and certain fruit of one whose life has been changed through the gospel through the word of life, but merely living that way is not the same as holding it forth. Holding it forth, displaying the word of life, displaying the gospel means that people know what it is. That means you will be speaking it. It's a word picture. It's a metaphor because the word of life is not something that can actually be seen with physical eyes. It is something that must be spoken into the ears. So again, this is, this is all connected. Paul's desire for these Philippian believers is that they are holding out the word of life, that they are proclaiming the gospel to those around them. And that proclamation, that proclamation coming forth from them is coming from those who are shining like lights, standing out in a crooked and twisted generation, 
as those who clearly are opposed to the direction of the culture, those who not only are they not getting their way, they're, they're not getting their way, but they are those who, unlike most, when they lose something precious or important, or when they are forced onto a path that they would rather not go, unlike the rest of culture, they refuse to despair. They refuse to clap back in anger or vengeance. They do not utter a grumbling word about their situation, but instead are somehow filled with an unexplainable joy and confidence. They're shining like lights, and it is these people, it is these people from whom the word of life is held out. So they're shining like lights. This is a description of what what a faithful, a blameless, innocent child of God looks like. One who stands confidently in their position because of the truth of the gospel and because they know who they are and what they have been saved from and what they have been saved for. Because of that, they cannot possibly utter a complaint. Again, how could they, without sounding sillier than a billionaire standing around grumbling because he dropped a nickel down a sewer grate. They are confident. They are overjoyed in their position as children of God. So unlike the rest of the world that constantly holds out and displays their grievances, they are holding out, displaying, proclaiming the gospel, the word of life. So you may live and move among this crooked and twisted culture that we live in, And you may even take stands on the right side of all the moral issues of our day. And you may know much biblical truth. And you may even be able to state your priorities, what they should be in a biblical way. But when you don't get your way, when things seem unfair, when justice seems delayed, what is it that you mutter under your breath? Is it praise and trust in a sovereign, omniscient, loving God? Is it? Does your heart sink or is it settled? Have you ever thought that maybe one of the reasons that God hasn't given you more success in your evangelism is because he is protecting his own glory that is on display in the gospel from being darkened and dirtied and confused when it comes out of the mouth of a grumbler. So there is a strength. There's an unavoidable brightness that cannot be ignored when the word of life proceeds from the lips of those who have refused to grumble or complain. That's reason five, we're to do all things without grumbling or complaining. And when we do, it strengthens our witness. Now quickly, a final point from the end of verse 16. And we'll talk more about verse 16 from a different angle next week. But we must address this. Verse 16, he says, among whom you shine as, as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So reason number six, do all things without grumbling or complaining in order to support your leaders. 
to support your leaders. The church in Philippi, living lives, refusing to grumble and dispute, is the demonstration to Paul that he has not run or labored in vain. That's what he needs to see. There is almost nothing more discouraging to the leadership in a church than hearing grumbling and disputing from the sheep. Because it is one of the clearest signs that our ministry is having little to no effect on you. It is a demonstration of at least one of two things, but probably both. Both incredibly discouraging. Either the gospel is not near as precious and important to you as it should be, and you don't really understand it like you should, or your theology is bad. You do not have a right understanding of the nature and character of God as you should. And obviously seeing a church that is lacking in either of those areas makes any pastor feel like his ministry is having no effect. Right? Because how, as we've talked, how can a person who is truly taking to heart all that we proclaim here about who God is, how can they grumble about their circumstances? How can they grumble about anything, even the weather? Right? Even saying things like, I can't stand this weather. Whose weather is it? There's literally, literally only one person that you can be complaining about in that situation. Even just overall, in, in every situation you find yourself in life, one of the core biblical truths that we try to drive home all of the time from this pulpit and from every classroom down to the children is the sovereignty of God in all things. Not only is he sovereign, but he is faithful to his promises. And the only explanation for any Christian to ever grumble is that at least in that moment, they're failing to believe at least one of those two things about God. Either he is not sovereign or he is not faithful. But in addition to that, it's also a sign, probably an obvious sign that you, you do not treasure the gospel as you should. Because as we have, again, spent much time talking about already today, when you consider all that God has done for you in Christ, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary, taking a sinner worthy of eternal death and damnation and punishing Christ in our place, giving us his righteousness, and then adopting us as his children for all of eternity, how does someone who knows that to be true ever grumble? So you can see why Paul sees this as a mark of the effectiveness of his labor. The primary responsibility of any pastor or any elder is to bring their congregation to a right understanding of God and to clearly proclaim and magnify the glories of his great gospel. Therefore, all grumbling that comes from the people that the pastor has been diligently laboring to speak and teach these truths to feels like a gut punch to all of their preparation efforts. Conversely, however, nothing 
is more rewarding. Nothing is of more of a delight to the soul of every shepherd than to see the people under his care refuse to grumble about any circumstance or trial that they come under. Even in the most dark of times, to have the privilege of hearing not grumbling, but prayers of thanksgiving and prayers for strength and endurance coming from their mouths. To see them, to see their people so detached from this life, so detached from worldly treasures, so content in Christ that even from the hospital bed, they are only able to find reasons for thanksgiving. So in short, the heart of the shepherd is encouraged because they see within the church the marks of those who have been truly saved, those who have truly, you know, let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also, those who have actually died to themselves, taken up their cross to follow their Savior. Brothers and sisters, that, that's who we are to be. So, beloved, let us give ourselves to taking this command, this short command, so seriously, so that it becomes, even in our lives, as our lives go on, less and less a command to be obeyed, and more and more, just a description of us. As we live out what we know to be true of God, and what we know to be true of his gospel. Father, may these verses that we have just read. Oh Lord, may they describe our church. May this be who we are. May we be marked by this. Those who have trust in you, those who have such a trust in you, such a faith in you, and we're so grateful so grateful for what you have done for us to make us, a, make us your people, to make us your church through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May it become more and more prevalent among us. May this characteristic become more and more prevalent among us, describe us more and more as we think more deeply and ground ourselves more and more in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That this would be who we are, and this would be who the world sees when they see us. We pray that this truth will be an abiding result, a church that does all things without grumbling or disputing. That that would be an abiding result as we reflect now on the Lord's table and what it represents. Remembering the precious body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remembering through this visual representation, the price of our redemption, the ransom that was paid in order to make us fit for adoption, sons and daughters of God. We are so thankful, Lord. Help our actions 
outside of this place to match our gratitude and thankfulness that we are seeing and thinking through today. In Jesus' name, amen.